Well, uh, today uh, we enter the world of one of the most beloved characters in all of Scripture, Daniel. The content of this Old Testament book that bears his name ranges from exciting adventure stories nearly every, every child knows to mysterious visions and dreams that confound even the most educated scholars. Scenes include a fiery furnace, a den of hungry lions, and a great king temporarily transformed into little more than a wild beast. There are prophecies that are so specific, unbelievers swear that they had to be made centuries after they were actually given. There's so much good stuff in this brief book. And CJ and I sat down to go through and decide how we would, how we would uh, preach through this book. Uh, we made the decision to split it up into two parts. Uh, the first six chapters we are going to focus on from now through Thanksgiving. And then we're going to take a, a break for our Christmas series through December. And then get back to Daniel and finish up the last chapters of Daniel uh, after the first of the year. And I believe it is going to be a great study. I would encourage you to begin now reading through the book of Daniel, maybe doing so once a week, just, just reading through this great book and uh, just seeing what God has to say to you. Uh, let's begin this morning. We're in Daniel chapter 1. We'll begin with verse 1, book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Although Daniel lived 2,600 years ago on the other side of the planet, you don't have to look too hard to find a connection between his experiences and our world today. It's obvious that he'd been raised to know and trust God. Yet he was suddenly faced with a culture that, thought that, that sought to change everything that he had ever been taught was true. More than a foreign country, Babylon must have seemed like a different planet for Daniel and his friends. They were likely in their mid to late teens when they were uprooted from their home and brought to a land centered on carnal pleasure and strange gods. From what we read elsewhere in Scripture, it had a demoralizing effect on nearly everyone. It left them feeling hopeless, helpless, 
One Hebrew captive put it this way, Psalm 137, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung our lyres, our harps, for there our captors required of us songs, our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song? How can we sing the songs of Yahweh in a foreign land, in a strange land? You ever been so discouraged, so depressed, that even the music that you like sounded like nothing but noise? Sometimes, I... I think most of you would agree, sometimes life just gets hard. But that's one of the reasons why I love the book of Daniel. Because throughout this book, from beginning to end, Daniel reminds us that no matter how hard life gets, God is always enough. The opening verses give insight into the way Daniel viewed his situation. Verse 1 sounds like it could have been uh, just a, a, a normal news report on, a, on events in Jerusalem that the mighty Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had come and besieged it. From a worldly point of view, it appeared nothing more than an international power play, the big and powerful taking advantage of those weaker than themselves. But then comes verse 2 where Daniel reminds us that this has nothing to do with politics or world powers, and it has everything to do with God. His people have been rebelling against him a long time. So after centuries of warnings through his prophets, God finally did what he said he was going to do. He gave Judah and its king over to Nebuchadnezzar. Israel never thought such a pagan king could conquer the city that housed God's temple. But that's because they hadn't been listening. Nebuchadnezzar showing up and doing what he did was simply God keeping his word. By the way, that is something God always does. He always keeps his word. As is typically the case in the midst of all of Judah's sinfulness, there were some who had been listening. There were some who were faithful to God. And these young men are at the center of our text this morning. There's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We better know them by their Babylonian names. What what is that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Very good. You guys all get a star. Then, of course, there was Daniel. Immediately upon arrival in Babylon, they were all challenged to abandon their faith. These young men were chosen to be reprogrammed, to undergo a type of cultural brainwashing, to get them to think and act Babylonian. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary describes the the tactics that were used by their captors. First, there was isolation. Those with potential were separated from family completely removed from their former lives. In this controlled environment, there'd be no talk of Yahweh, the God of Israel, no mention of his temple, his laws, his land, his people. 
Their former way of life was essentially being erased. Second, there was indoctrination. Verse 4 says that they were to be instructed in Babylonian literature and language. And on the surface, it doesn't seem all that wrong to learn about the world around us, right? I mean, especially when the setting changes so drastically as it did for these four young men. But the goal of the Babylonians was not to add to knowledge they already had. It was to replace it with something else. To make them forget their previous faith in order to follow after other gods. To live differently in every way. Third, there was compromise. It doesn't sound like much to replace what they'd been eating with the king's food and drink. But remember, not only was the food different from what they were used to, it was vastly different from what family and friends back home were able to eat because they were constantly surrounded and besieged and at war. There were indeed certain foods unlawful for Jews that would have been normal for the Babylonians. See, the, the aim was to make, to make their, their captives think in terms of life in Babylon as so much better than life in Zion. They wanted to detach them completely. Finally, there was confusion. Along with all the other changes, they were given new names. Uh, names were just as significant then as now, maybe even more so. As the, the Jews, they tended to use them to honor either important family members or God himself. E example, Daniel. Daniel means Yahweh is my judge. That was changed for Daniel to Belteshazzar, which honored the Babylonian god Bel. You know, it wasn't just about changing their names to give them names with different meanings. It, this whole practice was a subtle reminder and a continual reminder that they weren't in Judah anymore. It was hoped that the more they heard and answered to their new names, the more they'd identify with their new life. Until slowly but surely, that old life with Yahweh and Jerusalem and Israel, see, all of that would just vanish away. It would appear Satan is still using some of the same tactics on us today in, in our lives as Christians. For example, think of all the ways that Satan attempts to isolate us as Christians, as members of the Lord's church. How talk of God and Jesus and faith, once the norm in the marketplace is often limited to church houses and Sundays. Now, I am talking about more than simply laws that appear to be limiting religious speech. I'm, I'm talking about how Satan convinces us that it's easier, it's less likely to cause problems if our Jesus talk is confined to faith-friendly places. You know, like places of worship, like here. Of course, the problem is the people in places of worship normally already know Jesus. The ones who really need to hear about Jesus, they aren't in here. They're out there. 
And um, we need no Babylonian masters to indoctrinate us. Because you know what we have in our culture. We've got, we've got television and radio and internet. All of which we turn on ourselves. With very little thought to the alien culture that we're being taught. So little time for prayer and Bible study, yet so much time flooding our minds with things that frankly won't matter a hundred years from now. It's interesting when you look back at what Paul wrote to the church, what, how he instructed the church uh, to, to act in their world, and how foreign it sounds to our world today. If you go to Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You go back and you underline those and you see how much of that you see within our culture on a regular basis, day by day, and how much we are led to focus on things that are pure and excellent and holy and good. And there is so little of that. He goes on, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. In other words, my example for you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to put these things into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, maybe if we thought a little more like Paul, we'd have a little more peace. How about the other things that the Babylonians used? They used, uh, they used compromise. They used confusion. Do we face those things today? Do you remember the last words of a compromised faith? I know what the Bible says, but that's right. Uh, when we start making cultural adjustments to God's word, things like, things like marriage, sexual identity, the definition of life itself, eternal standards, they begin to shift, they begin to, to change, and they get us to the point that no one knows what's right anymore. And the longer we live that way, the more that becomes normal, the more confused we become until ultimately our faith has vanished. If you think that that cannot happen here, you haven't been listening. Daniel and his friends knew what was at stake, their very identity as children of God. So, they met the challenge with courage. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved, underline that in your Bibles, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. You might say that Daniel and his friends responded to efforts to make them let go of God by holding on to God all the more. Most of us have those, those daydreams where we see ourselves as the hero in some dire situation. Am I right? Am I right? I, I've often done that when reading stories in the Bible. Uh, I, I, I've seen myself as the shepherd boy facing the giant, the prophet standing my ground before a wicked king, uh, the fisherman turned apostle 
proclaiming Jesus to the same crowd that crucified their Lord. We'd all like to think that if we were put in that position, that we would die for Christ. But such courage is a funny thing. It's typically built on a thousand little things. Not life-shattering, headline-grabbing, death-defying big things. But the little things that we say and do every day because we are children of God. It is built with things like the courage to offer a kind word to an unlovable, unloved person whom no one else is willing to help. Or the courage to share with someone who, who needs to hear about Jesus in, in, in an environment where most would prefer that you just stay silent. Or the courage to put the needs of your spouse, your kids, ahead of your own comforts. To make sacrifices for them that maybe they themselves won't even notice. Remember this. The courage to die for Christ is built from the courage that it takes to live for Christ day by day and moment by moment. Daniel understood that. He would eventually take a stand for God that would have him thrown into a den of hungry lions. If you want to read ahead, that's uh, Daniel chapter 6. But that courage, that courage and more was built on things like the decision that he made in today's text. He, he, see, he could have reasoned differently and reasoned himself out of any conversation about doing God's will. He could have reasoned that it was not the time to press such issues. After all, the Babylonian way... Well, it wasn't all that bad. I mean, we are just talking about some food, right? And some food and drink. Everyone else is doing it, Jews and Babylonians alike. I mean, if commanded to worship some idol someplace, well, maybe that would be something different. But this is such a little thing. I mean, what does it really, what does it really matter? Well, apparently, Daniel thought it mattered to God. And so he responded, Courage. Look, look at how his courage was displayed. His courage first showed in his resolve. I had you underline that word in our text. Resolve means to set one's heart or set one's purpose, to, to make up one's mind, to make a firm or a binding decision. Resolve is the good soil from which courage is grown, which produces action. We act according to our resolve what we set our hearts to do. Daniel set his heart on what? He set his heart on not defiling himself. What about you? Have you set your heart on the good things of God? Have you set your heart on being pleasing to him, on honoring him in all that you do? Have you set your heart to maintain moral purity? to speak only words that would build others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen, to take every thought in your thought life captive to make it obedient to Christ, to quit some harmful habit, to make prayer part of your daily life, to consistently feed on God's word, to follow through on your commitments, 
to share the gospel with someone that you know needs Jesus, to forgive someone who has wronged you, to ask forgiveness of someone you yourself have wronged, to develop whatever fruit of the Spirit is lacking in your life. You know the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do any of those stand out to you and you say to yourself, man, I know I've got this, but I know I don't have this. This is lacking in my life. Have you set your heart on those things? What have you set your heart to do? You will never accomplish what you should do, what you could do, unless you set your heart to do it. Daniel's courage showed in his resolve, and it showed in his approach. I I love the way he did this. Notice he doesn't make demands. No, he could have said, you know, my God, my God's in charge. Man, you don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me what to eat. He could have done that, right? He didn't. He didn't make demands. He made a request. He asked permission. Verse 8. You know, that does not mean that if he'd been denied by the official that he would have given up. His resolve was to do the right thing in the eyes of God regardless. But convinced that God had this, he knew he wasn't representing himself, he was representing God. He was representing a God who says over and over in Scripture, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so how did Daniel respond to his situation? He humbly patiently treated the person in authority with respect, the way he himself would want to be treated. In fact, when the official expressed his own fear, if something went wrong, that the king would have his head for it, Daniel got creative. Verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food, be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. In other words, test us. And so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. That's courage. To make such a suggestion, to give such a test, and put himself in the middle of it all? That's courage. Finally, he showed courage in the confidence he had in his God. Daniel trusted that God would not let him down. Something we talk a lot about. We give a lot of lip service, a lot of singing to, a lot of our prayers to, at least when we're together. But oh my, when we get out in the world, how seldom do we think of God not letting us down. How seldom do we picture God working behind the scenes, yet that's exactly what Daniel thought of his God. Verse 9, he wrote, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. It wasn't my plan that did this. It wasn't my strategy that did this. It was the God I'm trusting who did this for me. Daniel trusted all along that God would show up. Now, that did not mean that he always understood why God was doing what he was doing. And and here's the thing. I would imagine that there were probably times Daniel even disagreed with the way God was doing what he was doing. 
don't, don't you do that sometimes? I mean, are, are you ever in a situation where you pray and you pray and you pray and, and the results are, really, God? Really? And you're thinking to yourself, I, boy, I, I don't know, God. But hear this. Daniel's confidence in God was bigger than any doubt, any question, any struggle that he might have had. Bottom line, whatever he would face, he knew his God was bigger than the problem. Sometimes I think we get distracted. We minimize our God at some point. We, we try to, we invite God to act to get things started, and then we tell God, okay, I'm glad I'm, I, I, I'm glad you did this, God. This is good. You got things started. Now it's my turn. I'll, I'll take care of it from here. You, just, uh, you, just, you just, just go on. I'll come up with a method in order to make, make this happen. And then when that method that we come up with doesn't work, we blame God, right? I've had times that I applied what I knew was the expressed will of God. And I have seen God do some amazing things. But I, I will be honest with you. There are other times that I have done what I knew was the expressed will of God, and I had it seemingly blow up in my face. I have asked forgiveness and been rejected. And, and I know God wants me to ask for, for forgiveness. His son told me so. I, I have shown forgiveness. The 70 times 7, maybe not quite that much, but I've shown forgiveness only to have the offense against me repeated. I've shown love, mercy, and compassion and been met with anything but a positive response. But something that I have learned through all of this, that doing the will of God means I put everything in his hands. I give up the right to control the outcome. He is much better at getting results than you or I. I believe even when I don't see positive results to my obedience in the moment, that God is still working to honor that obedience. Our role as children of God is simply to respond yes to God no matter what. I have witnessed more times than I can say God accomplishing things that I hadn't even considered. I ask him for one thing. He gives me something else. And guess what? His something else is always better than anything I could have come up with. Because it, it, it either changed me or it changed somebody else. It either helped me in a way that I hadn't thought I needed help or it helped someone else. And sometimes these things happen not days, not weeks, not months after I've gone through, but years later. See, our God sees the end from the beginning of creation. He's in it for the long haul, working on our behalf in ways we never dreamed. And, and I know, you, you're, you may be out there and you're thinking to yourself, you've got the exception in your head right now. Uh, there's a good number of you, there's an exception sticking right here. It's right in between, I think, this ear and the brain, right? And you're thinking, well, how about this, preacher? How about this? Can I ask you to just wait? Would you wait until that day you open your eyes and look into the face of Jesus? 
because some of the things that he has done, I don't think we're going to get until then. But I guarantee you we have a God that is big enough, a God who loves us enough, a God who is merciful, a God who is full of grace, a God who always keeps his word, a God who can take care of his children, and he is preparing us for home. He's not, it's not about here. It's not about being comfor- comfortable here. It's about arriving home. And when we get home, When we get home, oh my, there's an old song that says, it will be worth it all when we see Christ. So I don't think Daniel was as focused, as, as much on his 10-day plan idea that he put out there for the chief of the eunuchs as he was on doing the will of God. If the test results didn't satisfy the king, I think that was fine with Daniel because he wasn't about satisfying the king. He was about satisfying the king of kings, almighty God. That should be our goal as well. Well, God did show up. I mean, he showed up in a big way. His, he showed that his work in Daniel's life was real. He showed it to Daniel, he showed it to Daniel's friends, he showed it to the official, and eventually to the king. Look at verse 15. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh, than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams at the end of the time when when the king commanded that they should be brought in. The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Huh. Wow. But, but I want you to understand, this was just the beginning of the story. Our God was just setting the stage for greater things to come. And I wonder, I wonder if even now, this day, this moment, if he's not simply setting the stage for greater things to come in your life. (laughs) My dad used to tell me over and again, every day is just preparation for the next. I'd go through some struggle, I'd go through some difficulty. And he had taught me to look at that as preparation. Because he believed that God is continually at work in the lives of all his children. He never goes away. He never goes home. He never goes to his room. He never goes to his study. He is with us. That, that's, why, that's why Jesus said, I will be with you to the end of the age. That is why God sees himself as Emmanuel, God with us. And because of that, he is always working in us. He's always working in you. 
And maybe you're facing some challenge in your life to abandon your faith. Or if not to abandon it, at least to compromise it. Now you know what I'm talking about. You know how life hits you. You know how those things will happen and you know how they come. If you are being challenged in that way, may I encourage you, may I urge you to be courageous. Resolve to do what you know is right regardless of the cost. Approach every situation with the humility that God honors, that God expects of you. And maintain your confidence in God. Knowing whatever you face, our God is always enough. Our God is always enough. Our God is always enough. If you're out there this morning and you're not a Christian, may I just ask why not? Can I, I, mean, I just ask that? What are you waiting for? I Think about it. You become a child of God. That means he fills you with his spirit. He gives you hope. He gives you life. He empowers you to live in ways that you could not do on your own. You become a part of the family of God. Heaven comes into your future now. He says, I, I want you to believe in me. I want you to put your trust in me. I want you to put your faith in me. Repent of your sins. Those are just weighing you down. So you need, to, you need to have a change of mind, a transformation of your mind. Change your mind about sin. No longer do you live for self, but you live for Jesus. You confess Jesus as Lord. You confess him as God's one and only son. You confess him as the Christ. And then you let him wash away your sins by the blood of the Lamb, by being baptized into Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit. What a gift. What a gift, having every sin washed away. If you're not a Christian, why not? Best day to be, best day, best day to be a Christian is what? Today. Now, how about the rest of you? The rest of you are Christians. So let me just say this to you. If you're already a Christian, live like it. Go live like it. And in doing so, honor Christ. Mm -hmm.